All right. Let's open our Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 27. 1 Samuel chapter 27. If you recall, last time we were together, we looked at chapter 26, which was really the second time that David spared Saul's life. The first time was in chapter 24. And remember, David had opportunities to, um, to kill Saul. And I find it interesting that during this whole time of, of these opportunities that David had, he really demonstrated the fact that he was really a great man. Because any man who has an enemy who's right before him and is uh, unguarded and um, is able to be taken, um, many people would take that opportunity. But David uh, demonstrated his heart, his character, by not only not taking Saul's life, but just respecting the office of the, of the, of the kingdom, of the throne of the king of Israel. And so David here is showing his quality. And we looked last week at the second time as uh, David, um, remember, resorting to the wilderness of Ziph, which is right there on the western side of the Dead Sea in the wilderness, and uh, he found out that Saul and 3,000 men had, uh, came, had come after him and was encamped in, in the hill of Hakalah, which is opposite Jeshimon, which I know all of you know where those locations are by heart. Uh, so David, being in the wilderness and Saul being in this other camp uh, at night, David and uh, one of his nephews uh, did something really courageous, actually kind of silly, actually. Uh, could have cost them both their life, but they went over into the camp while everyone was sleeping. And if you remember, uh, while everyone, Saul was in the center of the camp and the army was surrounded him, which is kind of the formation that they would do when they would sleep at night, but they were all asleep, including Abner, who was the commander of, of the army, who was uh, very close to Saul. And should have been awake, or at least had several men keeping watch throughout the night, but they were all asleep. And David and his young uh, nephew were able to go over and not only take Saul's spear, which was in the ground next to his head as he slept, but also took the cruise of water uh, with him. And they went back, and they, they crossed a ravine, and they went up into a, a place, and they yelled out. And you recall that Abner, who was the one who should have been protecting the king, he wakens and uh, David really gets on his case because David, being a shepherd, being a protector, um, this was and knowing the office of Abner because remember David was in that place. David was the commander of Saul's armies until he was banished and exiled, and so now he's really holding it to Abner, saying, "Abner, you should have died. You should, as the Lord lives, you deserve to die because you have not guarded your master, the Lord's anointed." And, um, and then finally, Saul speaks up, and once Saul realizes, after the, the spear and the cruise of water are demonstrated across the, <laughs> across the ravine, quite a, quite a distance away, Saul brings on his crocodile tears, which he's done this many times, and it's one of his more lucid moments where he really, I believe he was genuine. I mean, only God knows the genuineness of a man's heart, but I believe Saul was genuine, although I think because he was plagued by uh, demonic spirits, having uh, 
turned away from the Lord and the Lord sending an evil spirit to torment him, which is kind of disturbing if you think of it. Um, but God um, knew what he had to do. And there's really no recourse for anyone who turns away from God other than the, the enemy on the opposite side. <laughs> and I don't is anybody, um, is anybody aware that there is a, a battle between good and evil today? I don't, I, don't know, I, don't know, I don't know if it's really obvious to anyone. I mean, the news and all that stuff. I mean, maybe it's just a big, maybe it's all fake news. Maybe it is just a utopia and we're just seeing. No, it's, there is a battle between good and evil, isn't there? There is a battle. And so Saul, in one of his more lucid moments, he calls out and he says to David in his crocodile tears, again, worldly sorrow, not truly godly sorrow, because godly sorrow leads to what? Godly sorrow leads to repentance, but Saul was not going, he hadn't repented, and he wasn't, he wasn't going to repent. In fact, the only thing that stopped him in his pursuit of David was his own death by the Philistines, which we're going to read about in a couple weeks. But he says to David, notice the, the and I, again, I believe he was sincere, but he says, I have sinned, David, my son, for I will harm you no more because my life was precious in your eyes. This day, indeed, I have played the fool and erred exceedingly. And he really did. And later on in that chapter, toward the end, uh, he finally said to David, But you, you, David, be blessed, my son David. You shall do great things and, and shall also still prevail. And David went on his way and Saul returned to his place. And so now we come to chapter 27. And I'm hoping to get through 27 and 28 tonight. We'll see how that goes. But let's get right into 27. He says, and, um, and, and as we do get into this chapter, we're going to see um, that it's not one of David's more faithful moments. We're going to see that David um, not only being in fear, but also out of fellowship with the Lord, he again takes refuge with the Philistine king, Achish, the king of Gath, the, the, the very place, the very king and the land and the city that Goliath was born and came from. Isn't that kind of ironic? You'd think that going back to the, the city where you killed their giant, that they'd be all over you like a bunch of flies on putrid meat, you know. <laughs> Sorry for any of those of you who have eaten before you've come. But let's go ahead and read uh, chapter 27. Um, notice it says, And David said in his heart, Now I shall perish some day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should speedily escape to the land of the Philistines. And Saul will despair of me to seek, uh, to seek me any more in any part of Israel. So I shall escape out of his hand. And you know, when you think of this, because of Saul's inconsistency and because of how volatile he had become, David knew by experience, because again, this is at least the second time where Saul had been repentant and seemingly sorry for the way he had, he had been acting. But David knew that this was just a fleeting thing. He knew it wasn't going to last, and Saul wasn't going to stop. And Saul's word meant nothing to David. And that's why he would say in despair, you know, now I know that someday I will perish by the hand of Saul. And again, um, Saul here being, you know, was very uh, sincere, but uh, David was, um, was not fooled by that. And Saul, could just, he could not overcome his jealousy and hatred 
over David so he just wouldn't stop. And you notice at the, at the, part of the second part of that, verse 1, he says, There's nothing better for me than that I should speedily escape to the land of the Philistines, and Saul will despair of me and stop seeking me, right? Unfortunately, this is another lapse of faith on David's behalf. You know, sometimes when we're running in fear, we, we don't do the most logical things. And then again, it's easy for me to criticize or for us to criticize David because we can be armchair warriors and look at somebody else's life. We can look at the life of Peter and say, Lord, I would have never have denied you three times. I might have denied you once, but three times? You know, it's very easy for us to get on our high horse and think that we wouldn't do something. But we weren't in his shoes, so we really don't know. Now, it is true that he is not acting in faith, but rather in fear. And he needed the Lord more at this time than any other time in his life because David was in this place of floundering. He was in this ebb, this low ebb of his life of of faith. But I wonder what I would have done in a similar situation. Would I have trusted the Lord? Would I have trusted in his promises? Because remember, by this time, the promises... Uh, that Samuel, before he died, he, he prophesied or he, he prayed over David and told him that he would be the next king. I mean, really, that ought to settle it right then. If I'm going to be the next king and God told you to tell me that, then there's really nothing Saul can do to me. And it's very easy in practice or in theory to read something like that and then act like nothing ever, ever ha- is ever going to happen. But that's not usually the thing. Right? We read something like that, and there's, a, there's within us a very strong instinct for survival. You know? And so we don't always do the things. And in fact, we often will go by our feelings and emotions. Anybody here led by their feelings and emotions when making decisions? I'd be willing to say that most of us, if not all of us, and see our feelings and emotions, as valid as they can be, can also be very dangerous. Just like David's feelings here, I wonder what his life would have been like. I wonder what the pages of Scripture, how they would have been different had David just said, you know what, Saul, I know you're after me, but God has told me that I'm going to be on the king on the throne, and I'm not going to be running around like a, like a gazelle being chased in a lion in Africa. I'm not, going to, I'm not just going to be on the run. I'm going to, I'm going to you know, be more faithful. I'm certainly not going to lie, as we've seen him to be lying, using deceit, lying, Um, subterfuge, I mean, just all these things. And that is a question, you know, where, where is our trust? Where's our trust today? Many of you have come in tonight with things on your heart, things that have gone on this week that have perhaps broke your heart, perhaps are challenging you, but where do you run? Where do you run? Where do you go to? Are you going to trust the feelings and the emotions? I think God gave us them for a reason, but they ought not to rule over us. Do you know the difference? Be careful. Be very careful. Don't let your emotions. And, you know, when I'm in, you know, where do I run when I'm in fear? Do I run to the things uh, that I know that aren't going to remedy my situation? Do I run to the enemy as David did, which I find really outstanding in a crazy kind of way, that he would run to his enemies? I mean, that's just like running into fire. I don't understand it. Do I run to the world's ways or do I run to the Lord's ways? You recall when the children of Israel were in in Babylon or before they were um, taken into Babylon, 
The Lord gave to Jeremiah his indictment against the children of Israel, against the people of Judah, before he would take them into captivity. And one of the things he said in Jeremiah 2, verse 13, he says, My people have committed two evils. They've, number one, they've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that have no water. A cistern is supposed to give the promise of holding water. That's what it's there for. In Israel, if you go to Israel with us next March, you'll, we're going to see those cisterns in many places. And they're meant for when the rain falls or whatever, they would collect the water there. And it, it has a purpose. It's, it, it's meant to hold water. But he says, but instead of believing in the Lord, they've forsaken him, and rather they've hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns. A broken cistern has no use whatsoever. The water seeps straight through and it becomes useless. The whole idea behind it is gone. You know, perhaps we wouldn't really know what we would do until we were in the same circumstance as David was. Again, easy for us to say. Merrill Unger, one of the great commentators, a great Bible teacher and pastor, he said this. He says, no wonder a dull despair engulfed David and deprived him of faith and hope. How quickly the heart forgets the Lord's benefits and deliverances when the believer begins to look on circumstances and on things in the natural. That's true, isn't it? It's a lot like me, unfortunately. I hate to admit it. But often I, I size things up in the natural, and I forget that God is supernatural, and he's beyond all those things. I mean, think of what would have happened if Moses and the children of Israel, as they were escaping Egypt, got to the edge of the Dead Sea, and were like, okay, we're done. <laughs> we're done. We can't go any further. And what would have happened if God had said to Moses, Moses, stand in front of the sea and hold out the rod that's in your hand. And what would have happened if Moses says, are you kidding me? It's just a stick. They would have all perished. But he didn't. He rose. He, he listened to God. He believed in God. He trusted in God. Are we trusting in God that way? And let me tell you, I think sometimes the, the sweetest moments in our walk with the Lord are when we're up against a wall and there really doesn't seem to be any way out. And he just asks you to do something very simple. And will you do that simple thing? Remember when Naaman had the, had the uh, leprosy and Elijah, I think it was Elijah or Elisha, told him to go down and dip himself. You know, he was uh, the, the commander of the guard in Syria, and he comes to arrest him, and, he, and the Lord strikes him with leprosy, and the prophet tells him, just go down in the Jordan and dip yourself in seven times and you'll be healed. And he didn't even come out and v greet him, and he was furious. <laughs> And finally, he gets it. Finally, he goes down, he does it, and then he's completely blown away. But how, what would happen if he hadn't done that? I don't feel like it. My emotions are telling me that that's not really going to happen. So, verse 2, David arose and he went over with 600 men who were with him to Achish, the son of Maok, the king of Gath. And this uh, is obviously the same king that David fled to after he initially escaped from Saul after he went to Ahimelech, if you remember, uh, and the priests in the city of Nob where he received those, um, those loaves of bread for sustenance for he and his men and where he also obtained the sword of Goliath that's recorded for us in 1 Samuel 21. 
But fear is a slave master, isn't it? And that's really what David is operating in, not really operating in faith, but in fear. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 17, it says, Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. And then he says something really profound in verse 18. He says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love, perfect agape, it casts out fear, because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love, for we love him because he first loved us. And there is that, that idea. You know, perfect love casts out fear. Am I, am I, am I in the love of God? Or, or am I outside of the love of God? You know, it's very easy to slip out from underneath God's promises, of, uh, uh, under God's care, and think that you've got to take matters into your own hands and then in doing so, you find yourself fearful because you're not really walking. You're not really abiding in him. And then you're out from the protection of God. And that's when we get in trouble. That's when we get in trouble. And this word fear in this is the Greek word phobos, where we get our word phobia. You know, people who have a fear of spiders are arachnophobes, right? So it's a phobia. And David was undergoing a great phobia. He was in great fear. And again, where do you go? Where do you go? Remember when you were little, when there was a storm in the house or a storm outside, and who do you run to? If your dad was home, you'd run into his arms as a little kid or maybe run into the arms of your mother. And that's exactly what we can do to the Lord when we are fearful. We can run into his arms. And I like that. Run into his arms often. Don't allow yourself to try and figure it out. Don't allow yourself. But notice, in, as, as, we, as we're going to continue to read, there doesn't appear to be any prayer that David is offering up. And again, a very low point in his life. He's not praying either. He's just a, a wounded dog running from hill to hill, lying and, 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 and doing all these things. He still had some integrity, but he was very deceitful, as we're going to see with Achish again. Again, not, a, not the best time for David, one that he'll remember for the rest of his life, one, a period of time that he would write that would be the source of many of the words of the Psalms, because David, more than anybody, knew what it was like to be in fear, and he also understood what it was like to be in the tender care of God, and he, and he knew the protection of God, and he knew that God was with him, and God is with you. Do you know that he's with you? You may not feel like God is with you. You may not even feel worthy that God would even help you. But is it about our feelings? Is it about our emotions? Is it about what we think of ourselves? Sometimes I find that the times when I've really blown it and then God blesses me right on the heels of my great failure, and then he blesses me somehow and it breaks me down. Because then I realize that, Lord, this, this really isn't performance this really isn't about my performance, is it? And he's like, no. I was going to bless you whether you stayed, you know. I mean, don't get me wrong. There's, there's times when we, when we really blow it and, you know, we, 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 sense that, um, we sense that hurt inside. But sometimes, sometimes, you know, when you, even when you've confessed your sin and you've blown it and you're walking around with your head hanging low, God loves to bless and he does it and then it just it, it breaks you like an egg. I love that about the Lord. But there's no 
prayer here, at least nothing recorded. And I think if there was, the Holy Spirit would have saw fit to record it for us. But David was very uncharacteristic, very uncharacteristic. In fact, um, you know, fear is a funny thing. Uh, there was a study within the last five years, and it had shown that over 90% of the things that we fear do not come to pass. This article, I've read this before, uh, I don't know, about at least a year and a half ago, I think. But um, this article says, 500 years ago, Michael de Montaigne said, my life has been filled with terrible misfortune, most of which never happened. Do you hear that? My life has been filled with terrible misfortune, most of which never happened. It says, now there's a study that proves it. This study looked into how many of our imagined calamities never materialize. In this study, subjects were asked to write down their worries over an extended period of time and then identify which of their imagined misfortunes did not actually happen. And lo and behold, it turns out that 85% of what subjects worried about never happened. And with the, with the 15% that did happen, 79% of the subjects discovered either they could handle the difficulty better than expected or the difficulty taught them a lesson worth learning. This means that 97% of what you worry over is not much more than a fearful mind punishing you with exaggerations and misperceptions. I find that true in my own life. You know, there were things that David was fearful of, but fear is a liar. Fear is a liar. We fear many things, but many of them don't come to pass. Winston Churchill said this, he says, When I look back on all these worries, I remember the story of the old man who said on his deathbed that he had a lot of trouble in his life, most of which never happened. That's true. Jesus taught us a lot about fear and about worry. Remember, turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. Verse 25, this is a passage we, we know very well. And, and you know the funny thing is, is we can know it really well, but sometimes we don't always appropriate it to our life. I can know something in my head, but, it, but I don't do anything with it. I don't, I don't act upon it in faith. And I would encourage you, and I need to do this myself, that when I read the scripture, I'm not just reading it for head knowledge. I'm reading it for life, for real, personal, intimate relationship and and everything that I do in my life it affects everything that I say everything that I do and so this verse this chat this this passage is so important for us today because I believe there are many right now that are very fearful and they're very worried about many things and and take this to heart and read it again tonight before you go to bed pray over it read it and read it again and then go to sleep and have a restful sleep knowing that God has got you covered. What does it say? Verse 25, it says, Therefore I say unto you, Jesus said, Do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink. And I I wonder what David would have uh, experienced had he had the the Gospels written for him, you know, back in 1000 B.C. when he was walking the earth. You know, because what Jesus is sharing here is 1,000 years older than David was. But I wonder what David, if he could have been hiding in a cave and reading these words of Jesus... It says, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not the life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more value than they? 
Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? There's, you know, if you think about worry, like David was doing, there's really nothing you can do. I mean, all it does is rob you of, the, of, of what you're going through right now, and it, and it taints what's happening next in your life. If we can somehow avoid the whole idea of worry, we would do ourselves a great disservice. There'd probably be less people. All the pharmaceutical companies would go out of business. Because nobody would be taking pills to fall asleep at night because I'm worrying, you know, or because I, you know, whatever. They're just always worrying and popping pills, just a pill for that. And then you've got to take other pills to counteract the effects of those pills. And next thing you know, man, you're like a walking pharmacy. Have you seen some folks that, you know, they just open up their, you know, on their, on their countertop in their kitchen. They just got this row. I mean, they, they look like, it's like, what do you need? It's, it's all there. Well, I take this one for my, you know, I take this one for this, and I take this one to counteract the effects of that one, and because that one gives me a, a bloody nose, I take this to, to shrink the vessels in my head, but that gives me a headache, so I take Tylenol, and the Tylenol makes me feel kind of funny, so I take this other thing. Next thing you know, you're just, it's like M&Ms. But Jesus says, which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to your stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Now, many of us don't worry about clothing. See, you and I are blessed because we live in a country, and most people live in the world today, and they don't have to worry. Well, I should say a good chunk of people. But we don't worry about clothing so much. We worry about other things. But it's all relative, isn't it? Somebody else is worrying about clothes. We're worried about our job, or we're worried about whatever, our relationship. So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And I say unto you that even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek, and they do today, don't they? Seeking things. Sometimes not even the necessities really anymore. It's just the things that they want, not even the things that they need. For after all these things the Gentiles seek, for your heavenly Father knows that you have need of these things. But seek, here's the exhortation, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. And I wonder what David's life would have been like if he would have had this scripture, you know, and was reading it while he was hiding in the caves and running for his life. In Proverbs twenty nine twenty five, it says, The fear of man brings a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. It is a good thing to trust in the Lord. He's trustworthy. Have you noticed? He's trustworthy. God is trustworthy. You can trust in him for all things. Do you have something going on internally and you're worried about what the CT scan is going to give you? Trust in the Lord. Trust in him. David understood a thing or two about fear. Like I said, throughout his life, he learned that he could trust God. I love what he wrote later in Psalm 23. Remember, he says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Notice it was, 
Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, not even I'm walking into death, no, just the shadow of it, the appearance of it. It's just that the shade of it is covering me, but not death itself, but just the shadow of it. And yet I'm so freaked out and fearful. And, it, and we can get that way. And David was certainly that way. That's why he was acting the way he was, completely out of a character from the man of faith that we see in chapter 17, where he just walks up. The whole army is, is quivering and shaking in their boots, and this young teenager walks up with a sling and five stones, and he runs after Goliath. And then after he knocks him out with the thing, he cuts his head off with his own sword, with Goliath's sword, because David didn't have one. What great faith this young man had. And now we see him, we're like, is this the same guy? But again, it's easy for us to look at him. So David, verse 3, back in our text, he dwelt with Achish at Gath. He and his men, each man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess, and Abigail, the Carmelitess, remember Nabal's widow. It's interesting to me that Achish would take David back. Remember, just a few chapters ago, he feigns to be mad in Achish's presence. He sends him away. Get this madman away from me. And now he comes back now with 600 men, and there may be the clue. Maybe Achish saw that David, with his 600 lads, perhaps he could be used as a tool. Perhaps he could use David, bringing him under his wing. After all, by this time, David, everybody knew that David was an enemy of Saul. And so Achish is thinking, wow, I got me a nice rogue band of warriors here, and these guys are awesome. Their, their reputation precedes them. And as far as Achish was concerned, David and his 600 men would be fighting against the same enemy, Israel. Isn't that interesting? David and his 600 men fighting against his own people. And it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, so he sought him no more. And see, unbeknownst to David, this is the last time that Saul would pursue David. It was the last time. But David didn't know that. David had been on the run for a long time. Probably between seven and ten years, he'd been on the run from Saul. And then David, verse 5, said to Achish, If I have now found favor in your eyes, let, me, let them give me a piece of, uh, in some town uh, in, in the country that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? And so David here, he's... He's deceiving Achish, wanting a city to dwell in with his men and their families that he might carry on in his deception. He's feigning to fight the Philistines, the, the kings of Achish's battles, while really fighting the enemies of Israel. It's, it's kind of interesting because the, the king, as we're going to know, in fact, it tells us in the next verse, so Achish gave him Ziklag, which means winding, that day, and therefore Ziklag had, had belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. And Ziklag is in the uh, southern part of Israel, uh, just north of Beersheba. And so what David was doing was uh, staying down there far enough away from Achish and then claiming to actually be fighting the enemies of, of the Philistines, which were his own brothers. You know, those in, in, in Israel, fighting them instead. And we'll see that in just a minute. So verse 7, it says, 
The time, uh, now the time that David dwelt in the country of the Philistines was one full year and 14 months. That's quite a long time to be in the enemy's camp. And David and his men went up, and they raided the Jeshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites. For those nations were the inhabitants of the land from of old, as you go to Shur, even as far as the land of Egypt. Now these people groups that are mentioned here in verse 8 are actually true enemies of Israel. So he's telling Achish that he's actually fighting um, or that he, David is actually fighting the enemies of Israel, but Achish is thinking that David is fighting his own people. <laughs> Very interesting. So whenever David attacked, verse 9, he left neither man nor woman alive, but took away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the apparel, and returned and came to Achish, obviously with the spoil. And then Achish would say, where have you made a raid today? And David would say, against the southern area of Judah. Was that truth? No, it wasn't true, because he'd been attacking the enemies of Israel, not the enemies of Achish. Achish is thinking David's getting all this plunder from his own people that he's been attacking. So David is living this duality. He's claiming to be fighting the king of Achish, his battles, but he's not. At least not yet. (laughs) So... So David would say, against the southern area of Judah and against the southern area of the Jeremiahites, excuse me, or against the southern area of the Kenites. So again, David deceiving the king. And think about what a confusing time this must have been for him. A very confusing time. Living in the land of the enemy, claiming to be allied with them, And thank God, at least he's not following through with it. He's just being deceitful, but he's not harming his own people. And see, this is what happens when we are out of fellowship with God and responding only to fear. Responding to fear only in all all that's left for us when we follow fear and fall into fear is a train wreck in our own life. That's what happens. Verse 11, David would say, would save neither man nor woman alive to bring the news to Gath, saying, lest they should inform on us, saying, thus David did. And thus was his behavior all the time he dwelt in the country of the Philistines. So Achish believed David, saying, he has made his people utterly abhor him, therefore he will be my servant forever. And so he didn't leave anybody alive on those raids that he made down to the real enemies of Israel, because if any of them lived... They would go back and report to Gath or to Achish and say, uh, "You thought he was attacking the, the people of Judah? No, he was attacking us." And it would have blown David's story out of the water, and David would have been um, found out. And so now we get into chapter twenty-eight. This is undoubtedly one of the most difficult chapters, one of the most intriguing chapters in the Bible, and I'm hoping we can get through it. We may get through all of it. We may get through some of it. But as we read this chapter, you're going to have the question arise in your heart, and which is what most people have done. And the question is this. Would God allow Samuel, because we know in, in, in chapter 25 that Samuel died. 
So Samuel is dead. And why would God, would God allow Samuel, who was no doubt in heaven, to be conjured up in a seance? Was this really Samuel or an evil spirit feigning to be Samuel, communicating with Saul? And that, that's a question that many people, that's a valid concern. Because sometimes we see God do some pretty strange things. He allows some pretty strange things. One of the most strange, one of the strangest things I remember reading is in Genesis chapter 21. When Abraham, God tells Abraham, take your only son, Isaac. Take your only son and take him up on a hill that I will show you and offer him there as a burnt sacrifice. Now, Abram knew, because he came from a pagan country in a, a pagan environment, that human sacrifice was not, it was, a, it was a pagan thing. It was something that God was totally against. Abraham knew that, but yet he trusted God. And that's the thing that blows me away. Not so much that he would go do it, but that he trusted the, the, the voice of God. He, he evidently had the relationship with God such that when he heard God's voice, he knew it wasn't an imposter. He knew it was God. And see, I think that's what God wants us to do, is to have that understanding and to understand that he, how he works in our lives and to hear his voice, that still small voice. I've heard his still small voice on a number of occasions, not a great many times. I wish I could you know, be all spiritual and say, yeah, every morning I hear his still small voice. It tells me exactly what to do. I just execute no, it's not that way. And what I mean by that is I, I, I read the word and he guides me through that, but there are times where literally his, I can hear his, there have been a handful of times where he has really spoken to me and I knew it was him. And um, at real pivotal points in my life, he's made those things very clear to me. And that's what I mean. And so this is a really difficult chapter. And this what we're going to encounter in this chapter is one of those times where it drives the legalists crazy. It drives those who, who think that God can only be like this. <laughs> and granted, God doesn't violate his, his will. He doesn't violate his own laws. But there are times that he does things that just makes you scratch your head and go, Wow, would he show up during a seance? Did he? Yeah, he did. We're going to read about it tonight. It says, Now it happened in those days that the Philistines gathered their armies together for war to fight with Israel. And Achish said to David, You assuredly know that you will go out with me to battle, you and your men. And this is one of the greatest proofs of David's uh, supposed loyalty, loyalty to Achish was by going out with him to battle against David's own people. Because how would Achish ever be able to define whether he was really being genuine or not until he's actually going out to battle against his own people? And so David, uh, you know, Achish says, you, you're gonna, you guys are going to go out with me, right? And David's like, you better believe it. We're going out. And what a great test that was for him. Because if David was able to kill his own countrymen and be victorious, Achish would know that his claims of loyalty, they were true at that point, and, they would, and then he would have an ally, a true ally in David. But in verse 2 it says, David said to Achish, Surely you know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, Therefore I will make you one of my chief guardians forever. And this is literally, you're going to be one of my bodyguards. This is how, how, 
how um, Achish believed David. He believed him so much he was willing to put him in his very inner circle. And what a strange thing, again, for David to be allied with the enemies of Israel and even to the extent of being one of Achish's bodyguards. This sort of thing would be laughable if it, wasn't, um, if it weren't true. But I believe, again, this is one of the, his low points. And so verse 3, it says, Now Samuel had died, which we already knew that from chapter 25, and all Israel had lamented for him and buried him in Ramah in his own city, and Saul had put the, the mediums and the spiritists out of the land. So he'd put them out of the land. It's kind of funny because the, the Mosaic law actually says that they were to be executed. But so for whatever reason, he didn't do that. He just got them out of the land. And so Ramah is, uh, is the very place where um, Samuel had grown up, and so they bury him there. And I, I think of Samuel and what a, a wonderful leader he was and a great governor, in a sense, not only for Saul, um, but also for David, this great father figure. He was a moral figure in both Saul and in David's life. And oftentimes when we have a governor like that in our life, um, and when that governor passes from the scene, that is when our character is really tested. And because when we are no longer under the thumb of an authority, our true character often is revealed. And I think this is true. I see it in my own life. And we see this with Saul. Because at this time in his life, Saul had no governors in his life. Samuel had died. He had rejected God. God had rejected him. And he was literally a man who no, he was just a, a, an island unto himself. And what a miserable man. So not even the Lord. And he was a complete rebellion on, and on a very quick slope to destruction. And when you think about that, the state of where Saul was in, we see this in history. You remember after, after Joshua had died and the elders who were with Joshua, and that is actually when the state or the, the, the children of Israel, they began this great freefall morally. And that's when God rose up the judges. And that's when the time of the judges really began. But there's a really scary verse, and if you go there with me, or you can write it down, Write down this verse because I believe in America we're in that same place. And it's in Judges chapter 2 beginning in verse 7. It's 7 through 10. Judges chapter 2 verse 7. Let me read it to you. And this is very indicative of what Saul was going through as well. It says, So the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua who had seen all the great works of the Lord which he had done for Israel. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died when he was 110 years old, and they buried him within the borders of his inheritance at timnath Heres in the mountains of Ephraim on the north side of Mount Gaash. But here is the very puzzling and scary verse, verse 10. It says, When all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord nor the work which he had done for Israel. And why didn't they know? Because the fathers weren't sharing it with their kids. The grandfathers weren't sharing it with their grandkids. The mothers, the fathers, they weren't sharing the truth and, and what God had done. Israel's history was very rich, and they should have been telling their sons and their daughters, hey, you know, we came across the, you know, the, the, the Red Sea. I was, you know, your grandfather was there, or, you know, your, your, you know, your father was there, or I was there. You know, I, I saw what happened, the great deliverances that God had done. The things that he had done for them. They didn't know. They didn't rehearse it before them. They didn't tell them. 
And so there arose another generation that didn't know God. They didn't know the things that God had done for them. And wow, that's, such a, that's happening in our country. People aren't telling their kids about Jesus. Even Christians. Well, the Sunday school teachers will take care of that. We've got to do that. We've got to do that. We've got to be with them in the Word. We've got to be with them in prayer. Are we doing that? Love those kids, folks, because you know what? The small amount of time that you spend with them in, in inputting this wonderful, good, the good word of God, they are being inundated by that much. And I would encourage you not to be discouraged because, like me, I get discouraged. But don't give up. You keep doing it, and you keep living it, and you keep... Uh, appropriating it into your life, and talk to your kids. I love to talk to our daughter. I remember, you know, we would talk about how my wife and I met and the, and the story that that was, a really interesting thing, how we got into our house, the miracle that God did in that whole thing, everything. There's so many little things in these stories which are true, and we tell them this is how God worked. And, you know, it didn't happen every day. At different milestones, he did these really awesome things. You know, I mean, he's doing things, all good things all the time. Don't get me wrong, but there are watershed moments in your life where you know God has intervened. Share those things with your kids, especially what the Lord did and how you prayed and how you cried, how you got on your knees and you prayed and you didn't know what this was going to happen. Next thing you know, it happens. Don't dismiss that. Share it with them. Tell them because otherwise they're going to grow up and they're going to be like this. They're going to be a generation that didn't know God and they didn't know the things of God. So important for us as parents and grandparents to tell those things, to live the life before them. Oh, help us, God. Help me, God, to be consistent, to love, and to tell the truth, not only to my kids, but other kids. we got to do it. We have to do it. Notice in verse 3 at the end, it says that Saul had put the mediums and the spiritists out of the land. And Saul, in doing this, was actually doing the right thing. That's one of the few things that he did right. But he should have gone further because the law told him to, 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 to kill those people who were involved in those, spirit, um, those occult things. To rid the land of them. But he just banished them out of the land. You notice the difference? Because <laughs> they're going to continue doing what they're doing. What does it say in Exodus 22:18? You shall not permit a sorceress to live. A sorceress is some is a witch. She uses incantations. She practices magic. She's a sorceress. Leviticus 19 verse 31 says, "Give no regard to mediums and familiar spirits. Do not seek after them to be defiled by them. Why? Because I am the Lord your God. A medium is somebody who conjures up the dead, somebody with a familiar spirit." A necromancer, a soothsayer, a medium is the one who acts as a liaison, as you know, to supposedly contact or communicate with the dead on behalf of a loved one. But in reality, mediums are nothing more than they're contacting familiar demons that are posing as our dead loved ones, and they are giving us lies. And understand something about the devil. He's, very, he's got a very good memory. He can't know the future like God knows the future, but he knows the past really well because he's studied every one of us, and he's doing it right now. He knows exactly where your Achilles heel is, and that's why he's working so hard to get you to fall. He, he knows your parents. 
He knows their names. He knows the kind of candy your grandmother liked. And he can, through a medium, a devil, a demon, can say, tell, tell so-and-so that her grandmother misses the candy that she used to bring with him on the porch step. Remember that sunny day that you did that? I'll never forget that. And the person's going, <laughs> and then they're, 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 they're crying. And because, why? Is it because, no, the, the devils, the demons, they know history. They know your past. And people fall for it all the time. And then they keep coming back. Keep coming back supporting the witch. <laughs> keep listening to those lies. And it's not their loved one. It's a demon who knows their intelligence is very good, but not better than God's. Because God can say, I know what's going to happen tomorrow, but you don't. So, mm. God can speak the end from the beginning. He knows all things. He writes it in advance. That's all the demons know. They know about as much as we do. But God gives us even more, doesn't he? What does it say in Leviticus? A man or a woman, uh, in Leviticus 20, verse 27, a man or a woman who is a medium or who has a familiar spirit shall surely be driven out of town like Saul did? No, they shall surely be put to death. They shall stone them with stones. Their blood shall be upon them. I think that's pretty clear, don't you? In Deuteronomy 18, verse 9 through 14, when you come into the land, the Lord says, that the Lord your God has given you, you shall not learn to follow the abominations of those nations. There shall be no more found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire, or one who practices witchcraft, a soothsayer, or one who interprets omens, one or a, who is a sorcerer, one who conjures spells, or a medium, or a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead. For all these things are an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God drives them out from before you. That's why God called the Israelites when they came out of Egypt. The iniquity of the Amorites was not yet fall. When, when, when it came to the point where it's like, okay, God's thinking, I, I can't take this anymore. I've given them a couple hundred years to turn from this stuff that they're doing, but now is the time I have to judge. And he used his own people to be the hammer of his judgment against the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Hittites. He used them. He says, go in there and kill everything, everyone, everything. Wipe it all out. I don't want to have any part of it anymore. And what about we have astrologers and astrologists today? Don't confuse an astrologer with astronomy. Astronomy is fine and good. You study the stars, but an astrologist actually puts horoscopes together. Are you one who is into horoscopes, into palm readers and psychics? I remember a couple years ago, we were in, um, actually it's been more than a couple years, we were in Key West with my family vacationing. And the place is like Sodom and Gomorrah. It really is. On every corner, there is a, there, there's people, I mean, you name it, anything and everything goes. It is a circus, a moral, an immoral circus. It's crazy. People are walking around high on drugs, drunk, people all over each other, homosexuals all over each other, heterosexuals all over each other. Notice I included both of those. I'm not just like picking on the one thing. It's all sin, right? Everybody got that, right? <laughs> but do you dabble in these kinds of things as a Christian? Are you looking into this stuff? Do you dabble with Ouija boards? Probably none of you in this room. But I remember when I was a kid, I tried it once. 
Do you consult palm readers and psychics? A true child of God should not entertain any of this stuff. Because God forbids it. And why is it? Because he just doesn't want you to have fun? No, he knows that you will be deceived. Because think about what happens when that familiar spirit, that demon, is able to tell, is able to um, be possessed by a medium, and a client comes in and wants to know about Aunt Frida. And that demon knows Aunt Frida. That demon has studied her and her ancestors, knows exactly everything about her. What do you want to know? What was the last thing she wore? Well, she wore that ribbon, that yellow ribbon in her hair before you said, Oh, it's true. It's true. And then all it takes is for that demon to say, Well, if you really loved Aunt Frida, Aunt Frida's got something that she wants you to do. You need to take care of one of her enemies because she ripped her off and you need to go and take care of business. You know, you get my point. So people get deceived and God knows that because the, the devil never wants to just tell you facts that you already know. He gets you in and then next thing you know, he's got you and then he wants you to do stuff. That's why it's bad. In addition to destroying your relationship with the Lord, <laughs> you get my point. So, verse 4, the Philistines gathered together and came and encamped at Shunem. And so Saul gathered all Israel together, and they encamped at Gilboa. And this place, Shunem, is actually just a little bit southwest of the hill of Moray, uh, not too far away from Endor, where we, we see this witch that um, Saul is going to um, communicate with. Uh, this place, Shunem, is just east of Megiddo, right there in the Valley of Jezreel. When we go to Israel, we drive all around this area, and you'll actually see the places that we're talking about now. And it's really interesting to go to Mount, you know, we drive right by Mount Tabor, where this battle occurred that we're going to be reading about here in a few moments. So verse 5, it says, when Saul saw the armies of the Philistines, he was very afraid and his heart trembled greatly. And I think about what a horrible predicament it is for any man, especially Saul, who has been rejected by God. Uh, who has rejected God, and God has rejected him. And now he's up against this huge army, this huge battle he's about to go into. And he doesn't have Samuel, he doesn't have anybody, and he's scared to death. And so it says, when Saul inquired, verse 6, of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him. Wow, that doesn't sound like the Lord. You know what? Sometimes it is. <laughs> when you reject him, Long enough, he will reject you. It doesn't mean that's the end of you, because I really believe, even at this moment, I believe that if Saul was to fall on his face and say, God, I am done with my shenanigans, I think things would have been completely different. But it didn't. Saul continued in his aberrations. He continued in his sin and his rebellion, his hatred against David. And so, verse 6, when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord didn't hear him. You know, the Bible says in, in 1 Samuel 15, verse 23, um, it says, For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. And he says, Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, Samuel says to Saul, He has also rejected you from being king. You've rejected God, he is going to reject you. Now, is that true for every single person? Obviously not, but there is a line, and that's where we have to be careful. And there's no easy way to say God always does this, because he doesn't always do this. Sometimes he does things a little differently, but everything is different. 
He knows how far you've got to go. He knows your heart better than you do. Do you know your own heart? I don't know my own heart. But God knows what it's going to take to break me. And if I don't respond, he knows in his heart of hearts, because he knows all things, he knows that Rob is not going to recover from this. He knows that. I don't know that, but he knows it. And before he does any further damage to himself or anyone else, I'm going to have to take him. (laughs) That's a scary thing about God. But we see it happen. And I don't ever want to play games with God. Do you want to play games with God? Isn't it better just to be honest and and obey him and, and not to be in rebellion like Saul was? In Proverbs 15, 29, it says, The Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. In Proverbs 28, verse 9, One who turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. That's a really scary thing. Psalm 66, verse 18, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the psalmist says, the Lord will not hear. I'm so glad that he does hear But if my life, if the tenor of my life is rebellion, God has every right to say, I'm not going to speak to you for a while. Or I may not speak to you again. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. And I think Saul had gotten to that place. And God knew that. God knew that. Aren't you glad that God is a God of grace? I mean, he even is, even back at this time. But see, what we got to understand is that God know, he knew Saul's heart. He knew his rebellion. He knew what he was continuing to do. Do you follow me? If there's any one of us in this room, because what I just read to you, those scriptures, if taken out of context, will scare the daylights out of you. And, you know, sometimes I need to be scared. I need to have the daylight scared out of me to jostle me out of my complacency. But I want to tell you this, that God is a God of love and a God of grace. He is. And if you are really worried about any of those things, and maybe there's something in your heart right now that you're wrestling with, do yourself a favor, and tonight, just go to him and just say, Father, forgive me. Forgive me, Lord. I've been rebelling against you. I've been doing this thing. And you know what? God will forgive you, and he will continue to love you. Because he does. That's the God we serve. But don't take that for granted. Don't take it too for granted. Don't take it too granted. Don't take it for uh, for granted too much. I think you understand. Because why does God allow a believer? And I've seen this. A believer continues in sin, and all of a sudden, they just the Lord takes them home. They continue rebelling. Continue rebelling. It sounds like Romans or First Corinthians five. I think it is. He takes the home, the person, for the saving of the soul to keep them from continuing in the rebellion. So, verse 6, it says, When the Lord inquired, Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by the prophets. Notice there's three things there that God would, he would be inquired of in different ways. God would reveal his ways to people. Through dreams, through Urim and Thummim, which is a casting of lots, really, with, uh, with uh, two stones in the high, high priest's uh, pocket. And also the prophets. He would speak through the prophets. So verse 7, it says, Then Saul said to his servants, Find me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, In fact, there is a woman who is a medium at Endor. Wait a minute. 
You guys know where she is? Why haven't you done something about it? Why isn't she dead? The Mosaic Law says a, a woman, anybody, a, a warlock, a witch, a whatever, they need to be put to death. Oh, but we know where she is. Really? Why is that? Did you ever ask the question, how do you guys know that? <laughs> well, because we visit her every Friday at midnight. You know, I mean, makes you wonder, doesn't it? And the servant says, in fact, there is a woman who is at Endor. And unfortunately, this is the path of a man or a woman who rejects God. They are desperate for an answer because they have no hope or no direction. And when we reject God and his word and we basically are casting his counsel away from us, the only thing left then is just hopelessness and despair in dealing with the consequences of our rebellion and sin. And see, the encouragement here is to lean on the Lord and to trust him. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, not just a little of it. Lord, help me to do that, to trust you with all my heart. And lean not unto my own understanding, but in all of my ways acknowledge him, and he will direct my paths. He'll direct your paths as well. I love that about the Lord, don't you? But they all knew that there was a woman there. This place called Endor means spring of door which is a fountain of habitation is really what it means. And it's about uh, six miles southeast of, of Nazareth. In verse 8, So Saul disguised himself and put on other clothes, and he went in and two men with him, and they came to the women by night and said, Please conduct a seance for me and bring up for me the one who I shall name to you. So Saul now, he has to disguise himself so that he's not discovered because he's the one who, who put out the spiritists and the mediums. And certainly this woman was very much aware of that because she's probably a, a, in a different place now. And notice that they came to her by night. That's when all evil deeds happen. People think that somehow God can't see through at, at night. You know, they can, they can hide in the bushes, you know, and, and it's really dark and nobody sees. There's no cameras. Nobody's got their phone out videoing them and they think, ha nobody knows. And God's like, the light and the darkness are the same to me. I can see everything you're doing. In fact, I know what. Let me whisper in your ear what you're going to do next. God knows I'm here. God knows what I'm up to. Yes, he does. So can you do anything in darkness and get away with it and think that you're somehow hoodwinking God, pulling the wool over his eyes? No, it's not going to happen. Not going to happen. So the woman said to him, Look, you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the spiritists from the land. Why then do you lay a snare for my life and cause me to die? And Saul swore to her by the Lord. Notice, he swore an oath to her by the Lord. Isn't this ridiculous? As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come to you for this thing. He was swearing an oath by the Lord to do something that was against the Lord's word. Let me repeat that again. I actually wrote it down because it's, 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 it's lunacy. Saul was swearing an oath by the Lord to do something that was against the Lord's word. Kind of a conflict of interest, wouldn't you say? <laughs> At the end of Saul's life, which we're going to get to in a couple more weeks, it's interesting. In 1 Chronicles chapter 10, one of the things it tells us there in verse 13, it says, So Saul died for his unfaithfulness, which he had committed against the Lord. Because, two things, he did not keep the word of the Lord, and also because he consulted a medium for guidance. 
But he did not inquire of the Lord, therefore he killed him. There it is. He rebelled against the Lord. He, continued, he didn't keep the word of the Lord. He kept rebelling, keep rebelling, keep rebelling, never repenting, never repenting. He finally, at the apex of his lunacy, he consults this witch at Endor, swearing by the Lord, you're, nothing's going to happen to you even though I'm breaking the Mosaic Covenant and shattering every other thing in the, in the process. Then the woman said to him, whom shall I bring up for you? And he said, bring up Samuel. And this is really hard to read because I can't imagine the turmoil of Saul's heart as he is violating everything that the word of God has said. He's literally a walking contradiction to the word of God. Have you ever felt that way? Maybe sometime in your, in your rebellion, you felt like you were, you just, everything you did was just wrong. You know? Those are the kind of days you just want to go home and turn off the lights and lock the door and just sit in a corner with your Bible and just cry for a few hours. You know? and, and, and that's probably not a bad thing to do. <laughs> But when you're just, everything you touch, everything you do, everything you think is just wrong. It's just wrong. And you're like, oh, God, there's nothing wrong with that. The crazy thing is if Samuel is in heaven, and even if God allows him to speak to Saul, is Samuel's words going to differ from that of the Lord's? I mean, if, if God has rejected him, does he think he's going to go to his servant, his faithful servant, and as for his faithful servant to tell Saul, you know, everything that the Lord said that he had me say to you before about David being king, it, it's really not going to happen. That was just, uh, I don't know, I guess. I think I had something to eat the night before. It just wasn't right. No, it didn't happen. Um, God didn't mean that. He didn't mean it for the, like that. And, and, and contradicting God, do you think Samuel would, if he's seeking Samuel now, do you think Samuel's going to give him a different story? He's not, he's not going to give him a different story. Let me see here. Oh, boy. You know what? Why don't we stop there? Because if I don't, it's going to be another 15 or 20 minutes. <laughs> we'll pick up here next week. But isn't it interesting? And um, that the very things that God was opposed to Saul is now actively engaged in. And it's, it's important for us to think about that too. And to just not be rebellious against the Lord. You know, he loves every one of you. And, 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 and remember that tonight, you know. This is a, a very hard chapter and a very difficult one. And, the, and it'll be really exciting next week because um, as we finish this chapter. But this is not a... Uh, not a good time for David or for Saul. Because right on the heels of this encounter, literally this encounter that Saul has with this witch at Endor, it would be the very next day, folks, the very next day that David and all the Philistines are going to be fighting against Israel. Have you, have you thought about that? It's like we know that David went to Achish, the king of the Philistines, and now he's going to help the Philistines fight against the Israelites, against Saul and his army. And it's the very next day that Saul would lose his life 
And I find it interesting, too, that God in his grace, he sees David not where he should be. David was not where he should have been. He's fighting against his own people. But the Lord knew something of David's heart. He knew ultimately where David was going to go. He, he had plans for David, and he knew what David was going to do. Boy, what a mystery it all is, isn't it? It's a mystery. And so you see two men just not in the right place where they should have been. And so let's be in the place where God wants us to be. And that is next to him. To be with him, to be in the word every day, and to be in prayer. He loves you so much. And I'm so glad he loves me too. Aren't you glad that you belong to him? Aren't you glad that he holds you like a, a, a mother hen holds her brood under her wings and all the little chicks run underneath mama's wings and don't you dare come near mama when she's got the babies? It's like don't go near a, a big bear in the woods when the babies are all around the mother. Just get in your little helicopter and go straight up and hope you don't run out of gas. <laughs> Right? That's the way God is. He loves you. So let's stand and let's pray. This is such a, a, rich, um, a rich history and so much for us to learn, isn't there, in, in David's life. I love this. I'm, I'm loving this life of David. I'm, I'm going to regret when we're finally done with it because I almost want to go back again. Uh, there's so much. I feel like we're... You feel like you grow with him through these things, isn't it? Isn't it true? You just you learn the lessons along with him, and and that's what God is interested in. He wants you to learn the lessons through these things. And so, Father, we just thank you uh, for your word, and just pray that God we would be uh, open to all that you have for us. And Lord, that along with David, uh, as we read these this history and the things that he went through, his lapses of faith and his great heights of faith, Lord, we would we would be able to grow and learn through these things too. And at the end, Lord, to know that you're not upset with us, Lord, when we struggle, it's all what we do from that, Lord. Help us to always just run into your arms, Lord, like a child would run into the arms of a father. Help us to do the same thing, Lord. So we thank you for this night, Lord. Please get us home safely and bless our day tomorrow, Father. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.